Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Paul Piller, a nearly 30-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency and now a non-resident senior fellow at Georgetown University. Paul, thank you for coming on the show. It's good to be with you, John. You retired from your position as National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia at the CIA in 2005, a very intense time for someone working on the issues you were working on. And in the years since, you've written extensively about the problems that arise between the intelligence community and policymakers and the lessons you learned over the course of your career. Can you talk a bit about what your final years there were like and what insights you walked away with? Well, I retired from government service in 2005, and in the last five years of my tenure, I was the National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia, which meant basically I was in charge of coordinating political and economic intelligence uh, on those regions. And it's pretty obvious that the Iraq War, which was launched in March of 2003, was the thing that overwhelmed just about anything else with regard to uh, national security affairs uh, in, in the Middle East. So that was, uh, you know, that was the dom dominant part of that closing experience. I, I think one of the biggest lessons that that whole experience demonstrated and about which I later wrote uh, in my book on intelligence and U.S. foreign policy was that contrary to the traditional textbook view of intelligence policy relations in which uh, the intelligence agencies are presumed to provide factual and analytical input to the policymakers' decisions, uh, which are weighed along with all of the other considerations that a policymaker has to weigh, and then the decision is made. Contrary to that view, on the really big decisions uh, in U.S. foreign policy through the years, especially something like going to war or major revisions in grand strategy, intelligence really hasn't had much of an effect at all. However important a role it has played in implementing some of those decisions. And the Iraq war was an extreme case of that. Uh, intelligence did not drive that decision to go to war. Uh, even on the, the infamous issue of so-called weapons of mass destruction, this was, for the promoters of that war, um, just one more means of trying to sell it to the public. Uh, you may recall that uh, Vice President Cheney uh, you know, declared that there's no doubt that Saddam Hussein's regime has weapons of mass destruction, and he made this public declaration before the intelligence community had even begun work on what would become the infamous national intelligence estimate on that subject. And then when you look at the other major issue that was part of the sales campaign, the supposed links between the Iraqi regime and Al-Qaeda, here the intelligence community judgments went directly against uh, what the sales uh, pitch was saying, so much so that the promoters of the war were extremely frustrated to the point that they set up their own uh, office in the Pentagon with the mission of trying to discredit the intelligence community's work on the subject and to try to comb through whatever fragments of reporting they could find to suggest that there was an alliance between that regime and that group. And, and as we now know, you know, there wasn't. The intelligence community judgment was correct and the, the, the sales pitch was wrong. But probably the, what I still think is the most extraordinary aspect of that particular episode in our history is that there was no policy process to decide whether or not to launch the war in Iraq. I don't just mean a bad policy process, I mean no policy process. I mean, despite all the discussions in the Bush administration about how to sell the war and how to implement it, there never was a meeting of the National Security Council or a, an options paper that raised the question, should we go to war in Iraq? It simply never was asked. So there wasn't an opportunity for not only intelligence, but other, uh, what would one would think of as inputs in a, a good policy process to, to, to be brought to bear because there was simply, simply no process. And uh, again, you know, the Iraq case was an extreme case, but that was uh, you know, the fact of my life in, in those last years before I retired. And 
in milder ways, the generalization I made about intelligence and big policy decisions, I think, has pertained throughout our history. I wonder if you can talk a bit about the intervening years. You saw things very up close and left the CIA in 2005, but we've uh, seen multiple administrations with differing approaches to policy and intelligence. Um, in Obama and Trump, what's your assessment of how these issues that you identified have fared in the intervening years? Well, of course, John, with the caveat that I haven't been looking at it from the inside, but only observing from the outside, uh, every administration has had a, a different relationship with intelligence and the intelligence agencies. Um, from what I could see, uh, Mr. Obama, when he was president, uh, really believed in thorough policy processes, so much so that uh, he opened himself up to criticism for taking too long to make certain decisions that uh, he was accused of dithering. And, and perhaps, you know, some of that criticism was justified in that, uh, and he, you know, he, he might have pulled the trigger, figuratively speaking, on decisions uh, sooner than he otherwise did. With Trump, uh, you know, we're talking about someone who has his own personal and or commercial or psychological reasons for doing what he did that have really no resemblance toward any sort of, with any sort of orderly way of addressing the national interest. Um, we know that he looked at government agencies as if they should serve his own personal interest. That's the way he regarded the Department of Justice, uh, uh, that it should function as, as a kind of personal uh, lawyer for himself. And certainly that applied to uh, the intelligence agencies as well. Intelligence agencies are in the business of truth, to put it quite simply. Uh, they're trying to find out what actually is happening overseas. Uh, Mr. Trump clearly was not in the business of truth, and much of his administration, uh, to put it quite bluntly, was built on lies. Uh, so that right there uh, made for a, a basic uh, uh, line of conflict. The issue that in particular made this a conflictual relationship was the issue of Russian election interference uh, in, in the 2016 election. And so it was an extremely unwelcome to Mr. Trump um, finding by the intelligence community, but of course not just by the community. It's This has come up with the Mueller investigation and what the press has covered and other things, uh, that the Russians did play a, a significant role in that election. Uh, on the side of, of Mr. Trump. And of course, he, he did not want to hear anything about that uh, because it called into question uh, the legitimacy of his election win in, in 2016. Um, so with that as the basis for uh, the, that relationship being a very bad one, it just you know, went downhill after that. Um, you had uh, you know, one of the senior appointments um, as, as director of national intelligence was a, uh, a a Republican uh, uh, war hawk in uh, from Congress uh, who was not really qualified for the position. Um, fortunately, we did have a, an experienced professional as CIA director uh, most of the time of Mr. Trump's tenure. Although one can point to certain ways in which she was inevitably you know, swept up with uh, some of the political mood of the moment. Um, now we're back to uh, uh, President Biden, uh, who has had uh, ample experience going back to his days on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, with the national security community generally and the intelligence community in particular. Uh, I had the privilege of, of having uh, a number of interactions with him when I was still uh, an active serving uh, intelligence officer and he was uh, uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So he's extremely knowledgeable about how the system works, and so far as I can tell, he's making good use of it. Earlier this year, uh, a letter was made public from Senators Ron Wyden of Oregon and uh, Martin Heinrich of uh, New Mexico. And this was a letter they wrote to intelligence leaders about concerns about a bulk collection of Americans' information by the CIA and asking for such programs to be declassified and so on. This is distinct from some of the NSA uh, revelations that Snowden released, but uh, we don't have a lot of the, the details, I think, of that program yet. But if you could just talk about this problem generally of how the intelligence community throughout history has committed these kinds of abuses and to what extent they are uh, ongoing. 
Well, you talk about abuses through history, that would be an extremely uh, long and large topic. But on the particular uh, issue that was raised by the senator's letter, and you know, you and I and the rest of us on the outside don't know anything more about exactly what this program was about. But you're quite correct. Uh, most of the focus has been on not so much what CIA was doing, but rather what NSA, the National Security Agency, uh, has been doing mostly over the last 20 years, that is to say post 9-11. Um, and I want to emphasize that uh, a lot of what's taken place in this area and what the intelligence agencies, including NSA, have done has been a reflection of the changing national public and political moods uh, in the years since 9-11. After that horrible event uh, in 2001, uh, the national mood became extremely militant. Uh, the gloves were to be taken off and national security departments and agencies were expected to go much farther and take much greater risks and cross lines they had not crossed before in the interest of combating terrorism. Um, this included the whole subject of uh, collecting signals intelligence and communications intelligence. It also included a lot of things like the FBI's powers under the Patriot Act, the, the, not only were the authorities expanded, but there was this strong political and public expectation that the agencies would use those authorities very aggressively um, and, and not uh, hold back for fear of, of crossing lines. That is a move that has changed over the years. As years went by and we did not have another 9-11, then some of the old concerns about privacy and about the FBI doing too much with its powers came back into play. Uh, I would salute, uh, you know, some of the few members of Congress, uh, such as Senator Feinstein, who's been on the Senate Intelligence Committee, who has admitted quite openly that, you know, the mood in Congress has governed a lot of this, that they were uh, all in favor of taking the gloves off in the months after 9-11. And now, you know, some of the same members are saying, hey, we're going too far. NSA is invading privacy and so on. So I think that that context is very important to bear in mind. But just speaking as a private citizen who is concerned about my privacy as much as anyone else's, um, I think the, the worry about something like, you know, NSA, you know, spying on our communi communications. And, you know, I should explain once again, NSA, of course, has a charter just to collect foreign intelligence, but in, in the process of intercepting communications that may involve a foreign terrorist or other foreign target, some of those communications involve phone calls and other messaging that are here in the United States that has a domestic end. That's, that's why we're talking about all this. Um, I, I think worrying about our privacy in terms of abuse by an agency like NSA is really um, uh, worrying in the wrong direction. Uh, it does not take account of what is the professional ethic and e the professional reason for being of the people who work in a place like NSA. And I, I can speak from my own experience as one who worked at CIA, another part of the intelligence community. Even though that's where I was, my experience uh, all the time with my NSA colleagues was that they took extremely seriously their mission um, of keeping secret, even from somebody like myself working at another security agency, um, information that I didn't absolutely need to know to do my job. And especially when it comes to things like the identities and the activities of, of US persons, uh, which NSA has always considered to be extremely sensitive. Um, the people who work in a place like that out at Fort Meade, uh, you know, they, they are doing what they doing, are doing not to pursue some kind of political or, or commercial objective. They are there to perform their mission um, in a way that uh, subscribes to those very strict uh, professional ethics and NSA's traditional way of keeping a very tight uh, lid on things like uh, identities and activities of, of U.S. persons. Someone who has a different view of things and winds up going to work at a place like NSA and CIA 
quickly discovers that he or she is working in the wrong place. And my experience has been the, the few people I've known who would fit that category at CIA, they quickly left. And it's consistent with the advice I always gave to my students that if you want to pursue a political agenda, uh, don't go to work in one of the intelligence agencies. You know, what you want to do is uh, volunteer for some political campaign, hope that your candidate is the one who wins, and then you can uh, maneuver for a job as a deputy assistant secretary someplace, and that's your way to get into the, uh, the arena of making policy. I worry much more in terms of privacy and how it uh, may be invaded uh, based on communications. I worry more about what uh, commercial organizations may do, whether it's Facebook or somebody else, you know, who, who can track what I do on the internet. And their motives are not the kind of motives uh, that are exhibited by my old colleagues at NSA. They are commercial motivations. Uh, and there would probably be much less hesitation of exploiting private information about individuals and what they do for commercial purposes. So in short, I'm a lot more relaxed about, um, about what the agencies themselves may do. Uh, I'd be more concerned not only about the commercial side, but about what uh, the political overseers of such agencies may do by way of abuses. And there was uh, a story about the same time as the one about the senatorial uh, letter that you mentioned, John, about a proposal which, uh, according to the reporting, came from a, an unsuccessful Republican congressional candidate about a plan to try to use NSA uh, to dig up information that would somehow support the notion that uh, uh, the Biden campaign had help from foreign governments. I don't know what you know, this might have been based on as an idea, but that's exactly the kind of political abuse. And there's no indication that this plan went anywhere. It was during the Trump administration. Uh, that's exactly the kind of potential abuse that I think we most need to worry about because there there is a political motivation, uh, one that I don't think you're going to find down in the bowels of Fort Meade or Langley. A lot of what you uh, just said in terms of describing the intelligence community and that they have an, basically they have some kind of an ethic against the abuses that, say, I might be concerned about with respect to their uh, domestic collection of data and Americans' privacy. But we know that, that history demonstrates that not to be the case. I mean, there's a lot of attempt to make a distinction between, say, private and public service in this respect, and you just did that. But people are basically the same. Uh, public choice economics is a whole field of economics that demonstrates that people often pursue their own interests or the interests of their particular uh, bureaucracy or department and uh, sometimes trust in a supposed ethic, which is demonstrated not to have carried through throughout history. I'm thinking of the findings of the church committee, for example. Um, is there something more that we should do um, to uh, uh, uphold the trust and make sure that these programs are, are not the abuses that I'm worried about? Well, uh, two points, John. I'm glad you mentioned the church committee. If we're talking about the history of abuses through the years, you really need to talk about pre-1970s and post-1970s, because it was uh, the church and pike committees in the 1970s that went into this in great detail um, and resulted in legislative uh, measures that established a number of safeguards that simply didn't exist before, and in particular, uh, safeguards involving congressional oversight. That's when the select intelligence committees were created. Uh, those committees uh, since then, uh, there have been ups and downs, but overall I'd say they've taken their job very seriously, most often on a bipartisan basis. Again, we've had more exceptions to that more recently, but the, the, the sorts of things that happened before those congressional investigations in the mid-1970s just you know, cannot happen again. Um, because you have the oversight. The other point I'd make is even if one assumes the narrowest, most self-centered motivations on the part of one of these agencies and the people who work there, and what would be the motivations? Well, bigger budgets, um, that sort of thing, you know, more promotion opportunities for the people who, live, who work there. What is it that 
they would have to demonstrate in order to bring that sort of thing about. Well, it's not a matter of, you know, favoring this or that political party. It's a matter of trying to be right in the judgments that they make and the intelligence they collect. Uh, we've had uh, lots of, you know, intelligence failures or perceived failures that have been black eyes to these agencies through the years. That's not what they want. They want to be able to show themselves to be uh, uh, successful in making the right calls. Uh, that's the way they're going to uh, have a more pleasant day at the office and bigger budgets and, and a lot of other things. Uh, so that's exactly what we want them to do anyway. Uh, there, the, you know, the private motivation, in short, is, coincides quite nicely with the public motivation. Uh, even if they were self-centered and were just worrying about their own budgets and their own uh, reputation among the public, that would mean doing exactly what we want and expect them to do, which is to come up with the best, most accurate reporting and analysis about events overseas. And uh, I think, you know, we've perhaps seen some of the results of that with some of the intelligence that's made public with regard to the Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, which, so far as we can tell, um, turned out to be pretty darn good. So much so that, you know, President Biden, before the invasion, was going way out on a limb and saying publicly, you know, this invasion is going to happen, despite bearing much different views by a lot of pundits here in the United States and pundits and governments overseas, including that of President Zelensky, by the way. Uh, so I think we can look at this uh, as, as a success, whether it was motivated by just, uh, you know, patriotism and uh, sense of national interest or those more private concerns of, boy, if our agency is going to have a good public reputation, we better get this one right. Either way, they're doing the job we want them to do. Again, you left the CIA in 2005, and not only are we seeing the problems you identified continue, but we're still living with some of the legacy policies of those early post 9-11 years. Um, among these is the detention center at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which you recently wrote, remains a moral stain on America. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, you know, we, we should ask ourselves, you know, why was this particular place, this least naval base in Cuba, selected as this detention site. Well, it wasn't so that the people working there and the prisoners could enjoy the warm Caribbean breezes. You know, it was an effort by the administration at the time, uh, the George W. Bush administration, to try to find some place where what went on there would be out of the reach of anyone's law, U.S. law, Cuban law, international law. Well, it didn't quite work out that way because the Supreme Court had something else to say about that later on and saying, yes, there are constitutional legal protections that still extend as far as this base in Guantanamo. Um, and so it, it, it never was, um, just in terms of what it symbolized with regard to the rule of law, it was uh, not a very good thing to begin with. And since then, we've had, and I'll be quite blunt, an absolutely miserable record with regard to having justice served in that uh, the whole military tribunal system has been plagued with delay after delay um, and a, a failure uh, to, to carry out justice. Uh, some of the most recent attention, which, which I wrote about, concerned 9-11 uh, uh, defendants, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the uh, uh, alleged mastermind of the whole operation, and four of his co-defendants who were supporting the, uh, uh, accused of supporting the operation. Um, here we are more than 20 years after the alleged offenses, and they still haven't been tried, and there's a trial that's not even within sight over the next couple of years. It would have been far better to have used the tried and experienced uh, civilian court system, particularly at a place like the Southern District of New York, which has had an excellent record in dealing with terrorism cases. And of course, it was in their jurisdiction that the deadliest attacks occurred, the attacks on the World Trade Center. Um, if the whole 9-11 case had been handled there, then we would have seen Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the others had justice done to them years ago, whether that meant they were 
would be executed or be in prison for life, that would be up to a judge and jury. But we, we didn't go in that direction. And I think the reasons we didn't, um, there was that attempt to keep the whole thing you know, out of the rule of law. And then more widely, and I'm not just blaming this on the Bush administration, there was this more general sense that, well, counterterrorism is war. We have a war on terror. So we got to do things with the military, right? Hence the whole idea of detention in a military facility and trial in military tribunals, even though uh, the procedures and the infrastructure and the people simply were not ready to do that in the same way that somebody like the, the courts and prosecutors in, in Manhattan would have been able to do it. Um, all of that's bad. And that's in addition to uh, the, you know, the wider international uh, stain that uh, Gitmo has had on the U.S., not only uh, because of the, you know, the treatment of prisoners who have been held there, but also because of this failure to, uh, to see justice done. Uh, another legacy policy from those years is the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which has um, been cited by every administration since the Bush administration um, to justify um, using the use of force in multiple countries while essentially keeping classified which groups they consider to be covered by that authority. Um, what's your sense of how post 9-11 executive war authority has worked and how do we right size it? Yeah, well, in fact, there have been two authorizations for the use of military force that have been used in a very out-of-date manner. The one that you mentioned right after 9-11, and then there was the later one that was the authorization of the, the Iraq war. And administrations of both parties have stretched each of those uh, way out of any kind of recognizable shape to justify um, use of force anywhere in the world. Uh, it, it basically, it's a, it's a case of uh, if you're authorizing everything, then you haven't really authorized anything in particular. You've just given kind of a blanket okay to executive discretion. Um, this is very unfortunate for a number of reasons. Um, it is an offense to the constitutional principle that Congress has the power to declare war, but we haven't declared war since 1942. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a power that's been eroded for, for quite some time. I think the basic problem here is uh, that members of Congress, again, of both parties, uh, don't want to uh, uh, put themselves on record in a specific sort of way in either ruling in or ruling out particular um, circumstances in which force can and should be used. Uh, they find it much more politically convenient to just leave that to the administration of the day to decide, and then they can either support or criticize however uh, it may be politically convenient for them to do. I do give a lot of credit to a few members, especially uh, Senator Kane of Virginia, who has tried to exercise leadership in updating this whole thing to try to replace these uh, badly out-of-date AUMFs authorizations for the use of military force with something more up to date. Uh, but so far, he hasn't uh, persuaded enough colleagues to, to move, uh, move well in that direction. Um, so as a matter of constitutional order, this is all very bad. I would add, as a former counterterrorist officer, it is also bad in that it has given a sort of fuzzy green light to many forms of uh, use of force in the name of counterterrorism that may well have been counterproductive with regard to counterterrorism. By that, I mean uh, some of the U.S. uses of force that have inevitably incurred casualties among innocent persons um, have fostered the kind of resentment and anti-U.S. sentiment that have contributed to the uh, recruitment efforts of terrorist groups. Uh, I don't think we paid nearly enough attention to this. Uh, this is another byproduct of applying the war metaphor to counterterrorism, uh, even though military force is just but one of several uh, counterterrorist tools. So I, I hope that Senator Kane and others can do something about this, but I'm afraid uh, the, uh, the political inertia factor that I mentioned in Congress is... Uh, 
pushing against any sort of update of, of this uh, unfortunate situation. Let's move on to Russia's war in Ukraine, which you mentioned earlier. Um, Russia's invasion is seen by many to be a costly blunder for Moscow. And there's been some speculation about why Putin might have went ahead with it anyways. Um, and were there failures in intelligence or something about how Putin was receiving intelligence um, that created room for false expectations or perhaps overconfidence in the outcome, something I think Americans are familiar with. And with your expertise in this area, I just wonder if you have anything to say about that. I think it is highly likely that Mr. Putin has not been given a frank, objective, and truthful picture of matters by his subordinates and by his military and security agencies. We were talking about the Iraq war a few minutes ago, and here in the United States, that was an illustration of how uh, when there is a very strong policy inclination or desire, which in this case was the, uh, the desire to go to war against Iraq, it had been a neoconservative you know, objective for quite a few years, that this, even at some subconscious level, uh, can and does affect what subordinates in military and security agencies tell their superiors up the line. I mean, in the case of Iraq, um, the Silverman-Robb Commission, they, in some of their interviews, uh, got direct evidence of how some people in the intelligence community uh, muted uh, themselves or restrained uh, what would otherwise be their straightforward uh, uh, judgments about the so-called weapons of mass destruction issue because they knew what their policymaker masters wanted to hear. And they were reluctant to say anything that would contradict that. Well, here, that sort of thing took place here in, in the United States, where even if you um, say something that the policymakers don't like, well, that might make for an uncomfortable day at the office, but you're not going to be executed or sent to Siberia or something like that. Here in Russia, uh, where the consequences for uh, running afoul of whoever is in charge politically can be far more serious, I have no doubt that that sort of phenomenon of self-censorship in the interest of saying only what your political master wants to hear uh, had a very strong effect. We had an instance just uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in which Putin staged, it was sort of a televised uh, National Security Council meeting in which uh, the head of his foreign intelligence service, the SBR, uh, didn't quite get his talking points straight. He was fumbling around trying to remember, you know, what exactly was the line that Putin wanted him to adhere to with regard to the status of the Donbass, and they didn't quite get it right. And Putin dressed him down and embarrassed him you know, before the world uh, in this meeting. Well, any other uh, senior Russian military or security official who saw what happened to him is going to be very, very hesitant to say anything about Ukraine uh, that would be contrary to what they know President Putin wanted to hear. So yes, I, I have no doubt that uh, both with regard to the pre-war um, uh, assessments of the likely extent of Ukrainian resistance, as well as assessments that Putin has been getting since the start of the war about how well or how badly uh, the, the Russian effort has been going, that he is not getting the straight poop, that what he is hearing um, is uh, uh, very much uh, affected by the desire of those below him to uh, tell him only what he wants to hear. And that's in addition to all the indications of how isolated uh, Putin has been. It's kind of visual, the visual representation of that are these pictures from the Kremlin with these ridiculously long tables in which Putin is sitting at one end and even his defense minister and, and uh, military chief of staff are about 20 feet away. Uh, you know, I know this had to do with protecting him from COVID and so on. But I think it symbolizes uh, the way the flow of information is likely going in the Kremlin these days. I want to ask a question about how this war could be brought to an end. You wrote recently that, quote, neither side is capable of bringing about a conclusion to the war through military means alone. But disagreements among Ukrainians and their foreign supporters over what peace terms should be considered acceptable 
will undermine prospects for a negotiated peace, essentially. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, uh, I think it's enough of the war has transpired that uh, I'm quite confident making the judgment that neither side can have a clear military win. Uh, the Russians have already demonstrated the limits of uh, how far they can go, and the Ukrainians simply, even with outside assistance, are not going to be able to forcibly drive the Russians out of all of the territory in the south and east that they uh, they occupy. So I see you know, a couple of different uh, scenarios for how this war would eventually end. Uh, one would be a frozen, a frozen war, um, somewhat similar to the sorts of situations that arose in, in places like uh, Georgia, North Ossetia, uh, in which the Russians would sit on territory in the east and, and in the south that they have seized, but they would cease offensive operations elsewhere. And then, uh, you know, the war would never have a formal end, or at least not in, in the foreseeable future. The other alternative is some sort of uh, formal uh, armistice, uh, which would be the more desirable state of affairs uh, from everyone's point of view, but one that would involve uh, compromises, serious compromises on both sides. And, you know, the, the difficulty that I anticipate uh, is the range of opinions, first of all, within Ukraine, but also between Ukraine and its Western backers and among the Western backers as to just what sort of uh, peace terms would be acceptable. And I think it's worth worrying about because, well, uh, President Zelensky and what seems to be the dominant uh, view within his government uh, in, in Ukraine is that they, they're going to have to make some serious compromises in terms of stopping short of, you know, totally uh, re reconquering the Donbass. That may go against the voices we've increasingly heard in the West, including here in the United States, about how you know we we need Putin to lose big. Um, we this is a much uh, broader. Uh, contest than just over Ukraine, but it's more of a bigger East-West struggle. And I, I fear that there are some of those voices that would be willing to, you know, fight the war to the last Ukrainian. Um, I think that would be a mistake, uh, not just from the standpoint of all the disagreement and division that would uh, generate within the West and between the West and uh, President Zelensky's government, uh, but also that it would uh, uh, cause the war to just continue, not just as a frozen conf conflict, but as a live conflict indefinitely. And that would be the worst outcome of all for a number of reasons. Obviously, first and foremost, the suffering of the Ukrainian people, um, but also the risk of escalation. Uh, and I, it, to, the longer that the war goes on, uh, the more... Uh, of a risk there is of greater extremism on the Ukrainian side. I mean, some of those, uh, some of the Russian propaganda about uh, neo-Nazism may become more and more real to the extent that we see that kind of extremism develop. And I think that's more likely to develop uh, in a prolonged war. Now, what kind of terms, you know, might be reasonable? I think a lot of, uh, uh, there are a lot of possibilities in one of the peace proposals that the Ukrainians themselves reportedly placed on the table in those talks that were held earlier uh, with the Russians. Now, I have some reservations about some of the things that were reported in that formula, uh, particularly regarding security guarantees from outside powers, which sounded an awful lot like the functional equivalent of membership in NATO without actually becoming a member of NATO. And that would have problems both for us and certainly for Putin. Um, but the other thing in there that I think uh, is worth exploring was how to handle the issues of Crimea and the Donbass. And uh, the Zelensky government's proposal was something along the lines of, well, let's agree to disagree and we'll negotiate with this over a 15-year period. That may be about the only reasonable way to handle it. Uh, so neither side has to explicitly give in with regard to the core issue of territorial control and sovereignty over these areas. And they'll say, well, we'll negotiate about it. You can see some parallels perhaps between this and the Taiwan situation where uh, Taiwan's de, de facto independence uh, continues and you don't have a, a wider war as long as uh, both sides go through the fiction that um, 
uh, you know, this is supposedly, you know, part of China, but we're, we're not going to ever have to agree to a specific formula beyond, in that case, what was said in the Shanghai communique about Taiwanese independence or non-independence. Something similar with regard to the Donbass and Crimea, I think, is we're going to uh, wind up at. That will be very unsatisfying to many people in the West. They'll say, uh, look, uh, this, in effect, rewards Putin for his offensive war. Uh, we need to defeat him in a bigger way. But unfortunately, that simply may not be militarily possible. And the likely outcome would be a prolonged war with all those disadvantages I mentioned before. Moving on to Iran, which you write a lot about, um, for listeners who need a review, the Obama administration painstakingly negotiated a, a pretty robust international agreement that rolled back Iran's nuclear program, established probably the most intrusive inspections regime in the world in exchange for sanctions relief. Um, in his second year in office, Trump abrogated that deal and punished Iran for its full compliance by imposing additional sanctions in violation of our own promises. The Biden administration has been working on renegotiating this deal. Uh, what's your sense of how those, thing, how those negotiations are going? Well, there's, there's every good reason to reinstate the JCPOA, which is the, the nuclear deal. The current um, main, and by some reports, you know, the overwhelming hangup concerns something the Trump administration did uh, during its tenure, which was to place the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, on the U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations. The Iranians are demanding, as part of uh, a new arrangement, to uh, have it deleted from that list. And the most recent reports are that the Biden administration is resisting doing so. Um, I think it would be extremely unfortunate if this becomes an issue that prevents reinstatement of the limits on the Iranian nuclear program in the JCPOA. Uh, I ought to give some background about this foreign terrorist organization listing issue. Um, for a long time, we didn't have any such list and we got along just fine without one. Uh, this list was created by legislation that Congress passed in 1996. Uh, I was working in the uh, counter-terror center at CIA by the time and was directly involved in some of the support to this, so I, I was intimately uh, familiar with the origins of this. Um, the purpose of the legislation, or this, this part of the legislation, it covered a lot of other topics, was to try to, to, to criminalize uh, material support to terrorists. And, and what was coming up were reports of Americans who either wittingly or unwittingly were writing checks um, for money that wound up in the hands of, of some, some radical group overseas. In some cases, people didn't know they were what they were doing. They thought they were contributing to a charitable cause or whatever. Other, in other cases, it was more witting. And so this legislation made that a crime. But if you're going to make material support to a terrorist organization a crime, you need a specific, precise legal definition of what is a foreign terrorist organization. And hence, you had to create the list. Uh, and there were certain criteria that the legislation provided. You know, it has to be an organization, it has to be foreign, it has to be terrorist. Um, this was clearly and always was designed to just list, you know, non-state groups, you know, Al-Qaeda or you know, groups like that. Um, never before until what the Trump administration did with the IRGC was a, an instrument of a state, um, a, an organ of a state placed on that list. The IRGC is a branch of the Iranian military. Um, it, you know, people even get conscripted uh, into the IRGC <laughs> against their will. And yet they've been put on this list of foreign terrorist organizations. In short, the IRGC never should have been put on the list in the first place. This was just part of the Trump administration's overall effort to build what was called a sanctions wall to throw everything they possibly could at Iran and make it as difficult as possible for a successor U.S. administration to undo this mess in order to reinstate uh, the JCPOA and the limits on the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, 
the resistance to delisting the IRGC is is not justifiable. The IRGC is still going to, as a government entity, be subject to numerous other sanctions on other lists based on other U.S. legislation. So it would have almost no practical effect at all. I think we can criticize the Iranians for being so adamant that it has to come off the list, but we also ought to criticize the Biden administration for apparently resisting the delisting. Uh, clearly, there is this political resistance, and I suspect it's the political advisors in the White House who are uh, having the most influence on this, um, to doing anything that can be portrayed by political opponents as being nice to Iran, and in this case, being nice to the Rev Guards of all people. Well, it's not a matter of being nice to them. It's a matter of uh, doing away with this now just symbolic designation for the sake of reinstating controls on the Iranian nuclear program that will shut, as the original JCPOA did, all possible paths to an Iranian nuclear weapon. And I would tell those political advisors in the White House or others who are worrying about uh, taking the IRGC off the foreign terrorist organization list, the political problems uh, for the Biden administration, I think, will be much greater without a reinstated JCPOA because the Iranian nuclear program is going to continue to grow. It'll get bigger and bigger. The specter of a possible Iranian nuclear uh, weapon will loom larger and larger. The risk of military action between the United States and uh, Iran or between Israel and Iran will loom larger. And all that is going to be a political as well as a policy negative. As you intimated there, uh, one of the primary, if not the major obstacle to uh, reinstating the JCPOA is the place that Iran holds in domestic U.S. politics. You once wrote in Political Science Quarterly that U.S. politics is preoccupied with a kind of almost pathological enemy image of Iran that is, quote, divorced from the actual extent of any threat Iran poses to U.S. interests. Can you tease that idea out a bit more? Yeah, I, I think future historians, John, are going to look back at this obsession with Iran, and the question will be asked, here you have this sort of middling, mid-level, Middle East uh, power, uh, you know, way below the level of the United States in terms of uh, uh, its, its military and economic strength. Uh, it is one that you know, does not have the ability to project military power be beyond its own immediate region. And here we've had so much of U.S. policy revolving around uh, Iran, Iran, Iran. Um, you know, I, I think it goes back in particular, uh, there are a number of ingredients to this, but it goes back in particular to the hostage crisis uh, in 1979 to 1981. I mean, that was a really bad thing that the new uh, Iranian revolutionary regime did. It was an act of terrorism that victimized 50 of our U.S. officials. Uh, it was it was a horrible way to start a new relationship, and it was clearly the Iranians' fault. Um, and this was seared into the U.S. consciousness. Uh, you know, Ted Koppel's uh, Nightline program began as a report on the hostage situation every weeknight on television. Um, and this has become part of our political culture ever since. Now, there have been other uh, contributing factors uh, that have nursed this image of Iran along. Um, I think the Israel dimension is a very big part of that. Uh, you know, policy toward Iran in this country now has become, to a large extent, policy with regard to Israel. We hear a lot about how much Iranian hatred there is for Israel. We hear much less about how much Israeli hatred there is of Iran. Uh, you could look, for example, at the uh, General Assembly speeches at the United Nations in the most recent uh, General Assembly session last fall uh, and see what the Iranian and Israeli representatives said about each other or each other's countries. Well, the Iranian president, he had about two or three sentences about Israel, the usual sort of language about the Zionist entity. And, and they said they were going to you know, favor a referendum in the Palestinian territories. And that was about it. In contrast, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bennett, about a third of his speech went on and on and on about how awful Iran is and how it's, it's the root of everything bad in the Middle East. And of course, if you're 
look at who's threatening to attack whom militarily. Well, you've got repeatedly threats along those lines uh, from Israel aimed at Iran. And of course, Israel has the far stronger uh, military force, even when you're just talking about conventional weapons, let alone nuclear weapons. Um, and to the extent that that is the, uh, you know, a core part of the Israeli government's policy, well, then that inevitably, as any Israeli government policy does, affects U.S. politics and the way a, a, an issue is treated here in the United States. So these are all ingredients. I think in one of the unfortunate aspects of this, besides tying us up in knots over something like the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal, is a, a, an inability to really assess you know, the roots and nature of a lot of the conflicts in the Middle East, which is still a very conflict-prone region. You know, we talk about, for example, the war in Yemen, which has uh, been a horrible situation. It's often described as the one of the biggest humanitarian disasters. Now, it's probably been surpassed by Ukraine in recent weeks, but it's been very bad. And lots of attention is given to every time the Houthis, you know, fire a missile that lands in Saudi Arabia or the UAE. Well, you know, this was a civil war that was begun a number of years ago. Uh, the big escalation of it in terms of foreign intervention was the Saudi intervention beginning around 2015, which is uh, consisted mainly of a tremendous aerial assault, which more than anything else has been responsible for turning that conflict into a humanitarian disaster. The destruction in that direction has been far, far greater than anything that the Houthis, with the aid of the Iranians, have been able to mount in the other direction in retaliation. So if you want to understand you know, that conflict, the roots of it, why it has become awful, just focusing solely on Iran and what they're doing uh, gives you a very, very small part of the picture, and you don't really understand it at all. The same thing can be true with uh, some of the other conflicts uh, in the Middle East as well. So so we, we, we suffer in a number of ways, but uh, looking at it as a Middle East analyst, I'm most worried about simply misunderstanding the nature and sources and possibilities of conflicts in that region. Politically and otherwise, the United States is facing major challenges many of them stemming from the global pandemic and the resultant economic stressors. Uh, there's a new war in Europe, as we've mentioned, and something about our politics, at least to me, seems unstable. The Republican Party is still de facto led by someone who attempted to stay in power despite the will of the people, and partisanship seems to have reached new intensities. Uh, sometimes I think this uh, kind of toxic brew will be the catalyst for some kind of substantial changes ahead. Um, how do you think about how this might impact our politics and the way we carry out national security policy? Well, it's already uh, affecting national security policy and foreign policy a lot. We're talking about the hyper-partisanship. It affects foreign policy not in terms of steering U.S. grand strategy in, in one particular direction over another direction, but rather in subjugating what might otherwise be a carefully formulated grand strategy to partisan considerations in which the main objective that might drive a particular policy is not how does this fit in with a larger strategy for keeping the United States uh, free and prosperous and, and making it influential in the world, but rather how does it affect the electoral prospects of party X. Um, with, with Trump as uh, the way he took over the Republican Party, we saw uh, this in some extreme ways, but it is no way limited uh, just to Trump. Some of the things that we've already talked about, John, like the, the Iran nuclear issue, have already exhibited um, the way partisanship can dominate and uh, overrule what would otherwise be a more objective uh, way of assessing uh, U.S. grand strategy and foreign policy. That nuclear deal that we were discussing, uh, you know, the initial opposition to it after it was uh, negotiated under the Obama administration was driven, not exclusively, but to a very large degree by Republican desire to strike down what was seen as Obama's principal foreign policy achievement. 
They wanted him to have a loss rather than a win. The JCPOA in that respect was the foreign policy counterpart to, say, the Affordable Care Act on the domestic side, which was widely regarded as Obama's biggest domestic achievement. Um, and we are seeing it again in the uh, reflexive Republican opposition to restoring the JCPOA under President Biden, not only because that would be a you know, win for Biden, but just as a carryover from uh, the earlier ideologically driven now uh, opposition to the JCPOA, despite the fact that in the last few years, we have had a record uh, under first under the JCPOA and then after the Trump administration reneged on it at, under the so-called maximum pressure policy of results that present an overwhelming case in favor of restoring the agreement. In the three years that the agreement were in, was in effect, uh, the Iranians abided by it. Uh, uh, their, their nuclear activities were a very small fraction of uh, what they had been doing before the agreement. Since 2018, which is when the Trump administration pulled out, their nuclear activities have greatly expanded. They have a stockpile of enriched uranium that at last count is something like a dozen times bigger than it was under the agreement. Moreover, their regional activities during that time became at least as aggressive as they were before. And the political hardliners in Tehran have the upper hand in a greater degree than they did before. In other words, the, the, the absence of the JCPOA has been a complete failure in contrast to the success before. Nonetheless, uh, you have a strong party line opposition to restoring uh, the agreement. And then there's, when you get to Trump, you have the curious situation of attitudes toward Russia. And whatever was the personal or commercially driven reasons why Trump had such a friendly posture toward Putin, and part of it may have been just admiration for Putin as an authority, authoritarian figure who was able to do things in a dictatorial fashion that Trump wished he could do but didn't. Uh, this was a marked a major break from what had been traditional Republican uh, doctrine with regard to dealing with Russia or its predecessor, the Soviet Union. You know, the Republican Party traditionally had been and had been proud to present itself as the party that would stand up strong against Moscow, uh, more so than the Democrats. And this, this refl was reflected in uh, not only the postures of Republican political leaders, but also of, of the rank and file as reflected in opinion polls of taking a firm line against the offenses uh, of the Russians. Then along came, comes Trump. And because we now have this partisanship that is so strong that we have a tribal belief system in which partisans of a particular party will tend to follow the lead of what their party leader says about something, no matter how foreign that may be to traditional ways of looking things. And so the Republican Party under Trump became the party that was friendlier to Putin and Russia. And that was, again, reflected in opinion polling. Well, now, most recently with the invasion of Ukraine, uh, things have been shaken up a bit more, and you have some confusion on the Republican side between those who are, have reverted back to a traditional, hey, we need to get tough with Moscow uh, uh, position, versus those like Tucker Carlson and some others who are, for for you know, whatever Trumpian reasons, are still staying with a, a more positive view of, of Putin and Russia, while Trump is still saying only nice things about Putin. This, you know, whatever is the right policy for the United States to take toward Russia these days. And there's plenty of room for policy analysts to debate about that, uh, to what extent it should be um, you know, detente, containment, conciliation, confrontation. Uh, you know, we can all argue about that on in terms of what is best for U.S. national interests and for world peace. What it shouldn't depend on is what is best for party X or party Y. Or you know what what follows from a tribal belief system because a particular party leader is saying one thing rather than another, but I'm 
I'm sorry to say that so much of our foreign policy debate and discourse these days falls in that into that latter category, rather than in a dispassionate, objective way of discussing and addressing what's best for U.S. national interests. Paul Pillar, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a real pleasure, John.